Chapter Sixteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter Sixteen. Morgan Le Fay. If knights errant were to be believed, not all castles were desirable places to seek hospitality in. As a matter of fact, knights errant were not persons to be believed that is, measured by modern standards of veracity. Yet, measured by the standards of their own time, and scaled accordingly, you got the truth. It was very simple. You discounted a statement ninety-seven per cent. The rest was fact. Now, after making this allowance, the truth remained that if I could find out something about a castle before ringing the doorbell—I mean, hailing the warders—it was the sensible thing to do. So I was pleased when I saw in the distance a horseman making the bottom turn of the road that wound down from this castle. As we approached each other I saw that he wore a plumed helmet, and seemed to be otherwise clothed in steel, but bore a curious addition also, a stiff square garment like a herald's tabard. However, I had to smile at my own forgetfulness when I got nearer and read this sign on his tabard. Persimmon's Soap! all the prima donna use it that was a little idea of my own and had several wholesome purposes in view toward the civilizing and uplifting of this nation in the first place it was a furtive underhand blow at this nonsense of knight-errantry though nobody suspected that but me i had started a number of these people out the bravest knights i could get each sandwiched between bulletin boards bearing one device or another and I judged that by and by, when they got to be numerous enough, they would begin to look ridiculous, and then even the steel-clad ass that hadn't any board would himself begin to look ridiculous, because he was out of the fashion. Secondly, these missionaries would gradually, and without creating suspicion or exciting alarm, introduce a rudimentary cleanliness among the nobility, and from them it would work down to the people, if the priests could be kept quiet. This would undermine the church—I mean, would be a step toward that. Next, education. Next, freedom. And then she would begin to crumble. It being my conviction that any established church is an established crime, an established slave-pen, I had no scruples, but was willing to assail it in any way or with any weapon that promised to hurt it. Why, in my own former day, in remote centuries not yet stirring in the womb of time, there were old English men who imagined that they had been born in a free country—a free country with the Corporation Act and the Test still in force in it, timbers propped against men's liberties and dishonored consciences to shore up an established anachronism with. My missionaries were taught to spell out the gilt signs on their tabards. The showy gilding was a neat idea. I could have got the king to wear a bulletin-board for the sake of that barbaric splendor. They were to spell out these signs, and then explain to the lords and ladies what soap was, and if the lords and ladies were afraid of it, get them to try it on a dog. The missionary's next move was to get the family together and try it on himself. He was to stop at no experiment, however desperate, that could convince the nobility that soap was harmless. If any final doubt remained, he must catch a hermit. The woods were full of them. Saints they called themselves, and saints they were believed to be. They were unspeakably holy, 
and worked miracles, and everybody stood in awe of them. If a hermit could survive a wash, and that failed to convince the duke, give him up, let him alone. Whenever my missionaries overcame a knight-errant on the road, they washed him, and when he got well they swore him to go and get a bulletin-board and disseminate soap and civilization the rest of his days. As a consequence, the workers in the field were increasing by degrees, and the reform was steadily spreading. My soap factory felt the strain early. At first I had only two hands, but before I had left home I was already employing fifteen, and running night and day, and the atmospheric result was getting so pronounced that the king went sort of fainting and gasping around, and said he did not believe he could stand it much longer, and Sir Lancelot got so that he did hardly anything but walk up and down the roof and swear, although I told him it was worse up there than anywhere else, but he said he wanted plenty of air and he was always complaining that a palace was no place for a soap factory anyway, and said if a man was to start one in his house he would be damned if he wouldn't strangle him. There were ladies present, too, but much these people ever cared for that. They could swear before children, if the wind was their way when the factory was going. This missionary knight's name was Lacote Maltail, and he said that his castle was the abode of Morgan le Fay, sister of King Arthur, and wife of King Uriens, monarch of a realm about as big as the District of Columbia. You could stand in the middle of it and throw bricks into the next kingdom. Kings and kingdoms were as thick in Britain as they had been in little Palestine in Joshua's time, when people had to sleep with their knees pulled up because they couldn't stretch out without a passport. Lacote was much depressed, for he had scored here the worst failure of his campaign. He had not worked off a cake. Yet he had tried all the tricks of the trade, even to the washing of a hermit. But the hermit died. This was, indeed, a bad failure, for this animal would now be dubbed a martyr, and would take his place among the saints of the Roman calendar. Thus made he his moan, this poor Sir Lacote Maltail, and sorrowed passing sore. And so my heart bled for him, and I was moved to comfort and stay him. Wherefore I said, Forbear to grieve, fair knight, for this is not a defeat. We have brains, you and I, and for such as have brains there are no defeats but only victories. Observe how we will turn this seeming disaster into an advertisement, an advertisement for our soap, and the biggest one to draw that was ever thought of, an advertisement that will transform that Mount Washington defeat into a Matterhorn victory. We will put on your bulletin board, patronized by the elect. How does that strike you? Verily, it is wonderfully bethought. Well, a body is bound to admit that for just a modest little one-line ad, it's a corker. So the poor coal-porter's grief vanished away. He was a brave fellow, and had done mighty feats of arms in his time. His chief celebrity rested upon the events of an excursion like this one of mine, which he had once made with a damsel named Maledisson, who was as handy with her tongue as was Sandy, though in a different way, for her tongue churned forth only railings and insult, whereas Sandy's music was of a kindlier sort. I knew his story well, and so I knew how to interpret the compassion that was in his face when he bade me farewell. He supposed I was having a bitter hard time of it. 
Sandy and I discussed his story as we rode along, and she said that Lacote's bad luck had begun with the very beginning of that trip, for the king's fool had overthrown him on the first day, and in such cases it was customary for the girl to desert to the conqueror, but Maledisson didn't do it, and also persisted afterward in sticking to him after all his defeats. But, said I, suppose the victor should decline to accept his spoil. She said that that wouldn't answer. He must. He couldn't decline. It wouldn't be regular. I made a note of that. If Sandy's music got to be too burdensome sometime, I would let a knight defeat me, on the chance that she would desert to him. In due time we were challenged by the warders from the castle walls, and after a parley admitted. I have nothing pleasant to tell about that visit, but it was not a disappointment, for I knew Mrs. Le Fay by reputation, and was not expecting anything pleasant. She was held in awe by the whole realm, for she had made everybody believe she was a great sorceress. All her ways were wicked, all her instincts devilish. She was loaded to the eyelids with cold malice. All her history was black with crime, and among her crimes murder was common. I was most curious to see her, as curious as I could have been to see Satan. To my surprise, she was beautiful. Black thoughts had failed to make her expression repulsive. Age had failed to wrinkle her satin skin or mar its bloomy freshness. She could have passed for old Urien's granddaughter. She could have been mistaken for a sister to her own son. As soon as we were fairly within the castle gates, we were ordered into her presence. King Uriens was there, a kind-faced old man with a subdued look, and also the son, Sir Uwaine Le Blanchemains, in whom I was, of course, interested on account of the tradition that he had once done battle with thirty knights, and also on account of his trip with Sir Gawain and Sir Marhaus, which Sandy had been aging me with. But Morgan was the main attraction, the conspicuous personality here. She was head chief of this household, and that was plain. She caused us to be seated, and then she began, with all manner of pretty graces and graciousness, to ask me questions. Dear me, it was like a bird or a flute or something talking. I felt persuaded that this woman must have been misrepresented, lied about. She trilled along and trilled along, and presently a handsome young page, clothed like the rainbow, and as easy and undulatory of movement as a wave, came with something on a golden slalver, and kneeling to present it to her, overdid his graces and lost his balance, and so fell lightly against her knee. She slipped a dirk into him, in as matter-of-fact a way as another person would have harpooned a rat. Poor child! He slumped to the floor, twisted his silken limbs in one great straining contortion of pain, and was dead. Out of the old king was wrung an involuntary, oh, of compassion. The look he got made him cut it suddenly short, and not put any more hyphens in it. Sir Uwaine, at a sign from his mother, went to the ante-room and called some servants, and meanwhile Madame went rippling sweetly along with her talk. I saw that she was a good housekeeper, for while she talked she kept a corner of her eye on the servants to see that they made no balks in handling the body and getting it out. When they came with fresh, clean towels, she sent back for the other kind, and when they had finished wiping the floor and were going, she indicated a crimson fleck the size of a tear which their duller eyes had overlooked. It was plain to me that La Cote Maltaile had failed to see the mistress of the house. Often, 
how louder and clearer than any tongue does dumb circumstantial evidence speak morgan le fay rippled along as musically as ever marvelous woman and what a glance she had when it fell in reproof upon those servants they shrunk and quailed as timid people do when the lightning flashes out of a cloud i could have got the habit myself it was the same with that poor old brer urians he was always on the ragged edge of apprehension she could not even turn toward him but he winced in the midst of the talk i let drop a complimentary word about king arthur forgetting for the moment how this woman hated her brother that one little compliment was enough she clouded up like storm she called for her guards and said hail me these varlets to the dungeons that struck cold on my ears for her dungeons had a reputation nothing occurred to me to say or do but not so with sandy as the guard laid a hand upon me she piped up with a tranquillous confidence and said god's wounds dost thou covet destruction thou maniac it is the boss now what a happy idea that was and so simple yet it would never have occurred to me i was born modest not all over but in spots and this was one of the spots the effect upon madame was electrical it cleared her countenance and brought back her smiles and all her persuasive graces and blandishments but nevertheless she was not able to entirely cover up with them the fact that she was in a ghastly fright she said la but do list to thine handmaid as if one gifted with powers like to mine might say the thing which i have said unto one who has vanquished merlin and not be jesting by mine enchantments i foresaw your coming and by them i knew you when you entered here i did but play this little jest with hope to surprise you into some display of your art as not doubting you would blast the guards with occult fires consuming them to ashes on the spot a marvel much beyond mine own ability yet one which i have long been childishly curious to see the guards were less curious and got out as soon as they got permission End of chapter 16